Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to uh, Numbers chapter 6. Numbers. And then uh, mark that spot and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Number 6, Isaiah 9. I will probably get those mixed up several times this morning, so you just make a note. Number 6, Isaiah 9. This being um, the second Sunday of Advent, we're talking about peace, subject of peace. Last week, we looked at hope, and hope, if you recall, we said was a reasoned expectancy that things are going to turn out well. Not just, a, not just a wish, but a reasoned expectancy based upon the person of Christ and focused upon the person of Christ. Not only is Jesus the reason that we can have hope, but he is the object of hope. Our hope is to be in intimate communion with him, right? And this morning, we're going to turn to the word peace, the subject peace. Maybe the most, and probably because of my age, I'm, I'm more inclined to say this, maybe somebody's younger, those of us who lived through the 60s will appreciate this, probably the most abused word in the English language, the word peace, used to describe things that had absolutely nothing to do with peace whatsoever. Um, and that's unfortunate because it's, it's, again, it's a misused and misunderstood word, but it's a really, really important word. It's a critical word in our understanding and our appreciation of this scene, what God did for us in sending his son. So we're not just talking about a word on a calendar or on a Christmas card or on some kind of a, you know, Christmas wrap or something. It's a really vital concept, it's a core concept for us to understand uh, if, we have to have a, if we hope to have a biblical understanding of what this season is about. So to talk about that, we're going to look at a couple of different passages, and I should go there myself. I've asked you to. So let's start with Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of, of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and withhold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then turning back to Numbers chapter 6, another very well-known passage. Number 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And so, and so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Father, as we look to it this morning, uh, we would be instructed both in heart and mind, Lord, of all that you have done for us, and how, Father, we can participate in all that you have done for us. To that end, Father, we thank you for your word. I ask you to speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Both passages um, really well known and both critical. 
critical for our understanding of, of who our God is and the relationship he intends with his people, and they speak of peace. But they actually do more than just speak of peace. If, if we look at them carefully, they help us understand what this word, what peace is all about. They help us understand what the word means to a follower of Christ. And so to that end, uh, what I like to do is take just a few minutes and define the words. We should start with a good definition so we're headed in the right direction. And, and then look at these two portions of scripture and see if we can glean what they tell us about peace. Beyond just guaranteeing us peace or promising peace, what they tell us about peace. And then finally we can ask how it, how it impacts us, how it touches our lives. And so uh, first to some definitions. Uh, the word in the Old Testament used in both these passages, many of you will know this, it's a very common word. It's used um, like more than, well, way more than 200 times in the Old Testament. It is the word shalom. And you may recognize it uh, if you've been in the Arabic world at all. It relates to the Arabic world, salem. Um, it, it's usually defined in our, in our Western mindset um, it's defined in a way that's actually closer to the Greek word, the word that occurs in the New Testament, which is the word erini, which is the sensation of conflict. No, nobody trying to hit me and I'm not trying to hit anybody else. Right? That's kind of our Western mindset and that reflects the Greek term and that, and that certainly is a reasonable part of the word, um, but it's far from the only meaning of the word or even the essence of the word. Actually, both the Hebrew word and the um, Arabic word come from an Aramaic root. Shalom, which is a financial term. So the root is a financial term, and it refers to a financial transaction that involves a repayment or a, a recompense or a payment that reestablishes a broken relationship. So it's a payment that brings people back into relationship, and it removes whatever source of angst or opposition or antipathy, whatever may have been holding them apart. And that's where the idea of peace comes in to the word, right? It's a really expansive word, this word shalom. Um, and here I, I would source uh, Dr. Harmut Beck, German theologian that I, I've quoted before on this particular subject. He talks about um, shalom being health and well-being, to be physically well, to be emotionally well, to be whole. Um, about having an undivided heart. That's part of shalom. It's interesting. Uh, in 1 Kings 8.61, um, God says this, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord, to walk in his statutes, keep his commandments as at this day. So that expression, let your heart be wholly devoted to the Lord, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew text, it's actually um, shalom to the Lord to be holy and complete with regards to the Lord. And a real clue to what that intends is when the Hebrew scholars translated that from Hebrew into Greek in the second century BC in the Septuagint, because most Hebrews in that time couldn't read Hebrew, but they could read Greek. When they did that, when they translated the word shalom, they didn't translate it as arini, which is Greek for peace. They translated it as telos, which means complete or whole. So let your heart be complete and whole with regards to the Lord. So we get a little bit better, bigger picture of this word shalom. It meant prosperity, both in terms of, of economics and in terms of relationships and family. It included safety. Now safety more in a communal sense than an individual sense, but both carried the idea of safety. It's just this large encompassing word. 
And, and if you're familiar at all with Hebrew, you know that a lot of Hebrew words are that way. They're these embracing words that embrace a lot of different concepts, and um, shalom is certainly one of those, right? Um, a good example of it, of how powerful this word was, um, we get from the, from the words of our Lord, Matthew 10, 12, and 13. To the 12, he said, when you come into a house, salute it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And that kind of gives us a glimpse into not only how powerful this word is, because he's talking about it as something, not in a kind of a metaphorical way, but in a very real way, as something that the disciples could pass to their hosts. And if their hosts weren't worthy, they could retract from them. Real powerful concept. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Not only our, our privilege but our responsibility as the people of God to pass peace on to others, to be just not just ambassadors of peace, but distributors of peace. And that's a pretty wild concept uh, when you think about it. There's a whole lot, whole lot going on here. Um, the idea of shalom is a greeting. Of course, you've probably all heard that. Um, it's actually a prayer when, when someone will say to shalom. It's a prayer that the blessings of God, all the encompassing goodness of God would be present in that person's life, to have and to experience everything. You're going to hear me using that kind of expression a lot as we talk about this word. It's a big word that encompasses all of the goodness of God. You know, back in the 60s when people were using this word so much as an expression, it really meant nothing at all of what the word actually means. But quite often it was just the opposite, right? Um, which is what actually brings us to the Numbers passage. So let's go ahead and look at this passage uh, in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and to speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. This was a formula given by God to Moses, to Aaron, who was, of course, chief priest, the means by which they would bless the people. And it was, an, again, both a privilege for the priests and an obligation. It wasn't really a suggestion. Moses didn't say, hey, when you're in the mood, you guys do this. No, it was instruction. They were to, instructed to bless God's people in such a manner because it was God's desire to bless his people. Now it starts in verses 24 to 26 with the actual blessing and then it moves in verse 27 to the affirmation of both the responsibility and the promise that is there. The thing to recognize though in this passage is that it is poetic and that's a huge difference in Hebrew when you're reading between prose or historical narrative and poetry, and, and Hebrew poetry isn't like English poetry. Um, English poetry is like, is like rhyme of sound, like, you know, cat, rat, bat, that kind of stuff. Hebrew poetry could rhyme that way, but it didn't have to. Hebrew poetry was a rhyming of thought, where one thought, and you see a lot of parallelism, where one thought repeats another thought, or one thought is in contrast to another thought, and then through the lines of poetry, a thought could intensify and come to a culmination, and that's the, it's more rhyming of thought than rhyming of sound. Of course, in a translation, you wouldn't get the sound anyway, uh, but just in case you were wondering, no, it's not there. Usually there's no rhyme of sound like English poetry, but there's a rhyme of thought, and that can be really important in understanding it, and that's exactly what happens here. 
Because what we're going to find is, as both in the Numbers passage and in the Isaiah passage, as the, po as the poem works its way through, it comes to a culmination in one word, peace. Peace is a culmination of both of these passages. So it says, you shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. That's a real obvious parallel. God's blessing, his goodness to rest upon you. You're praying, you're invoking the blessing of, the, of God on people, and that he would not only bless them in every way, with, with health, with well-being, in their finances, in their family, in every way, but he would also watch over that and guard that. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to be blessed in a great way if somebody's going to come take it from you. So both to bless you and to protect you, right? And then to say, he'd make his face shine upon you. Uh, and this is the idea that God would look upon you. And this is where, frankly, um, I think it gets kind of mind-blowing for us sometimes. Um, and I'll say it right up front. The mindset that, that I take when I read these, I kind of go, hmm, I don't know. Because I can't speak for anybody else. But when I think about God's attitude towards me, I just can't help but think that God looks at me and he goes, Ah, uh, well, John, we cut a deal, and, and my son signed off on it, so i got to honor it. You know, I'm going to have to let you in heaven because you believe in my son, even though I'd rather not. But, yeah, that's just my, that's my perspective, on, which is wrong, right? I know it's wrong. It stinks, right? But that's just my perspective. This is just showing us how radically wrong that is. The very face of God, the radiance which emanates from his character, the prayer is that he will absolutely focus that on you. Now, if God doesn't want to be around me, he's not going to do that. That's not a good thing. You know, this is a reminder that God actually does want us around him. And if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. But he does. The prayer is that God's very persona would be focused on us in a way that shows his approval. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, that is to take up all of his goodness and pour his unmerited favor on you. Now it's one thing to work really hard on a project and see that it works. I was so excited. Pastor Joyce and I have gone round and round about Christmas lights. And I like Christmas lights too, but I look at the peak of my roof and I go, there is no way on this earth I'm going up there, right? So I had an idea. Was it last week? The Greeks decorate their boats. And we got our boat parked in our yard this year. So we decorated the boat. It was a whole lot easier, a whole lot quicker, a lot safer. And it looked really good. So yeah, I worked on it and it turned out, right? That's one thing. But when something great happens that you just didn't do anything about, and you never saw it coming. And God just, boom. And I do give God credit for putting the thought of decorating the boat in my head. It wasn't entirely me. But there, when, when God's grace is upon us, it's stuff that we don't deserve. We don't even see coming. Boom. I mean, let's face it. Half the problem with the, the Jews had with Jesus is they never saw him coming. They never saw a suffering Messiah coming. They never saw um, an entrance into the kingdom that they didn't have to earn. That's why they missed it. They didn't see it coming. His grace is his goodness even when we do not see it coming. And lift up his countenance upon you. Again, this is a parallel or reinforcement of that idea of his face shining on you. The countenance, um, that's what, I mean, how many of you use the word countenance this week? We don't, right? So it's not a word that we're familiar with. It means 
an expression or an appearance of the face that reveals what's in the heart, expresses what's inside. So, for example, Cain and Abel, right? Book of Genesis. Cain and Abel both bring an offering. God approved of Abel's offering, disapproved of Cain's offering. Have no idea how that looked or what happened, but they figured it out. The two brothers figured it out. Dad likes you best, right? And it says that Cain's countenance fell, right? His face was an expression of his, of his angst against God, and God called him on it, right? Here's another example in the book of, um, the book of Daniel. Um, when Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and 3, when Daniel heard about the conditions in Jerusalem, he was really upset. And so he starts fasting and he's praying and he's really entering into, he can't help but enter into the suffering um, in, the, in, the, in what was left of Jerusalem. Well, he was the wine bearer, he was a cupbearer to the king. He has to go work for the king. And he, now he's going to go in the king's presence and his face is a mess because of what's in his heart. And the king, and the king fortunately, he called him on it in compassion. He said, Daniel, what's with your countenance? What's wrong? And that's when Daniel says, well, how can my face not be messed up? I know what's going on in Jerusalem. My heart is broken. Can we do something about it? And, of course, the book of Daniel goes from there. But that countenance is revealed as Daniel's heart is expressed in his face. And then it says, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. This is where it is so important to recognize that this is poetry. Because this is not a laundry list of blessings. Right? Bless you this way, bless you this way, bless you. No, all of these blessings move in a parallel fashion to a culmination. The word peace expressing all that is there. The word peace expressing the joy that God has in his people. As hard as it may be for us to understand that. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. I used to read that thinking that when I get to be in his presence, I'll get all the stuff I want. Joy and pleasure. No, it means that in his presence, I will discover what true joy and pleasure is. Because I will begin to understand in his character what true joy is, what true pleasure is. And that's hard because sometimes I have a hard time even thinking of God as a happy guy. And I know I'm being very you know, flippant when I say that. But can we accept for a moment that God is a joyous being. There are pleasures in his right hand. There's joy in his presence. Must be a joyous person. It speaks many times in scripture of his joy in his people, right? So he gives us peace. That's the culmination of all these ideas. I think of peace um, like a diamond, right? I'm not, I'm not big into, into men's jewelry. Um, I wear this one because it was my dad's, and I just wear it because I appreciate it was, was his. Um, but as I look at it, I realize that the, the diamond in this ring consists of many facets. So I think of, of peace in a poetic structure like this as like all the facets of a diamond coming together. But here's the point. The only way you have the diamond is if you have all the facets. You can't take one out and still have the rock. It's gone, right? And think about this as well. Every, not just in a diamond, but any stone, every facet in a cut stone has edges on it, right? But those edges are also the edges of the facet next to it. No facet is complete without the facets next to it. 
the facets around it. So in the same sense, peace as a culmination of all these other things is not peace unless they're all there. We know this in a real practical way. You know, if I, would, if I were to ask you to list the 10 most important things in your world, what are the 10 things that you care about the most, the 10 things you value the most, and you made that list of the 10 things you value the most, I'm going to say let's assume for a moment that nine of them are going great. They couldn't be any better, but one of them's not going well. When you lay down to sleep at night, where's your head go? The one that's not going well. What will occupy your thoughts? The one thing that's not going well. Peace, true peace, to be peace, has to be whole and complete. So when it says he gives us peace, he's talking about a whole, complete experience. Not just things are going well in one area. Gives us peace. I came to appreciate in this something that for many years I really kind of had questions about. The book of Revelation Chapter 21, talking about the new Jerusalem. Verse 19, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, and it goes on. I used to think that and go, okay, great. The walls are made of precious stones. Cool. What's that mean? Then I realized the city is an expression of his character. And all of those radiant stones express the radiance of his character. And that changes that passage completely. And they all have to be there for the city to be complete because his character is whole, right? The multifaceted but comprehensive character of this God who loves us and wants to be the, wants the best for us. Peace is the wholeness expressed in the Numbers passage. Peace is found and experienced in the wholeness. You could use the word harmony just as easily when everything is in harmonious relationship. The whole point of the priestly blessing is that God experienced his people, or God desired for his people, rather, God desired for his people to experience the whole of who he was. Not just to be better, better off than any of their neighbors, but he wants his people to experience the whole that he is, right? And, and we find the same thought, really, in the Isaiah passage, if you'd like to turn there as well. Of course, this is the, the Christmas passage. Uh, it's 700 years after the Numbers passage, but it says pretty much the first thing. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. Again, the parallelism is obvious, kind of a red flag to the reader. You know, this is a poem. It's in poetic form. Look for the parallelism. Look for the culmination of thought. The government will rest upon his shoulders. That word for government is not used anywhere else in Scripture. It's only used in this chapter of Isaiah. It doesn't mean a form of government per se as we think of. Rather, it's, uh, when they translate it into the Septuagint, they use the word archi, not a word for government, but the chief stone or the high point of a city, the high point of an area. It meant the most prominent, preeminent place, that he would occupy the most prominent, preeminent place, and he would wear it on his shoulders as a visible representation. That's where rank is typically worn, on the shoulders. It's to, it's to point out to us that, that what God is going to do, point out to the people of Israel, when the Messiah was being promised, that he would be the chief focal point of everything. Everything would revolve around him. Not him building something that met their standards, 
but making the kingdom conform to his standards, his character. His name would be called, and what follows is not a list of offices, it's a list of characteristics. Wonderful counselor, one to whom his people can always turn. I think one of the reasons, I think we know this, that the people of Israel so missed the Messiah when he came is they were looking for a military leader who would come, you know, beat upon the Romans and drive them out. But that isn't what God promised them. He promised them a man of counsel, a man of wisdom, like Solomon, the first son of David to sit on the throne. Solomon was known for what? His military might? No. was known for his wisdom. Now, he had a pretty healthy army at his disposal, but he was known for his wisdom. First Chronicles 22.9, God said to David, Behold, the son will be born to you, he shall be a man of rest. I'll give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon. I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Solomon's reign rested upon his wisdom, not upon his military might. Even so, when the Messiah came, and even now as he ministers to his people, it's wisdom, his counsel. So good to know that whenever I have an issue in my life, I can take it to a mighty counselor. Human counselors, they're fine. Godly, spirit-filled counselors are great. But given the choice, I've just to go to the mighty counselor. Right? And that's one of the things that I hope every good and godly Christian counselor does, is take it to the mighty counselor. Because that's what he is. He's a wonderful counselor, right? In fact, in Matthew 12, Jesus talking about Solomon said this, The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Wise and wonderful in counsel. Eternal Father, one of essence with his father. Mighty God, the prophet Messiah would be both man and God. And then it culminates again with Prince of Peace. Again, it ends in peace. Not a laundry list, but a culmination like a radiant stone, right? These two passages both end with an affirmation of the essential nature of peace. Not simply a lack of conflict, but the very character of God, the whole and complete God that he is, expressed in our life, revealed in our life through the radiance of of his face, the summation of all of his blessings. And this is where this speaks to us, and this is where peace speaks to us. First off, it's something we experience, not something we have. It's the absence of conflict, yes, hopefully we're not whacking another and hopefully speaking to one another at the very least a civil tone, but it's so much more than that. Peace, shalom, is so much more. It's the very character of God, his wholeness, his goodness, his strength surrounding us. Literally, it's the environment in which we find ourselves. And the best analogy I can come up with this, and you'll have to forgive me if it's a little bit on, on I don't know, corny side, I don't know. Um, but some of you may know that my dad was in submarines in World War II. That was what he did. And I always loved to talk to him about it. Mostly he talked to me about the technical side of it. But I'll never forget, one day I asked my dad, I said, you know, subs aren't all that big. They're like 300 feet long, not that wide. And you guys would go all the way across the Pacific regardless of the weather. That must have gotten pretty sloppy sometimes, you know, because the Pacific can get pretty nasty out in the middle of it. I said, what was it like being in a submarine in a storm, he said it was fine. Because when you drop down about 50 feet, 
the storm goes right over the top of you. He said, so whenever there was a storm, we just went down and sailed through it. To be completely immersed in the sea was to be protected from the storms above. And I think about that. To be immersed in the character of God doesn't change the fact there are storms. Doesn't change the fact there are other things going on. But there's safety in the immersion of his character. That's what peace is all about for me. It's his wholeness, it's his goodness, it's his strength surrounding us. Isaiah says in 26.3, this is a marvelous passage, the steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That, that phrase perfect peace is shalom shalom. It's shalom peace. You will be kept in complete whole, the character of God peace when we trust in him, immerse ourselves in him. Allow that to happen. And like um, hope, peace means the most when it's in short supply. Great example of that in the book of Judges. Uh, Israel, chapter 6 of Judges, Israel was in a mess. They had done evil, they had disobeyed God, they were doing all kinds of stuff they shouldn't be doing, and they were doing it persistently. They asked God to deliver them, and God began the process by handing them over to the Midianites, who were a wicked people. If you read Judges, you know that the Midianites would write in, and it, it, it's so specific, it even gives them the fact they wrote it on camels. They'd write it on their camels, and they'd steal what grain they could steal, and they'd steal what livestock they could steal, and they'd steal what stuff they could steal, and they'd burn the rest or destroy it. They weren't satisfied with just taking stuff. If they couldn't take it, they destroyed it. They literally wanted to destroy the people of Israel. So the people called out to God, and God raised up Gideon. And I think we all know the story. This is a guy that wants nothing to do with the job, right? He hides out. He's not qualified. He's not fit. But in the process of God persuading Gideon, and isn't it so wonderful to know that God is so compassionate that even though Gideon initially resisted what God was calling him to do, God just didn't cut him off and go to somebody else. He worked with the man. I'm so glad. He worked with the man. And as Gideon is in that process of coming to terms with what God is calling him to do, God is calling him to resist these mighty Midianite raiding parties. God said to him, I will be with you and you will defeat Midian as one man. It's going to be like you're fighting one guy. Wow. And as, as Gideon is processing that and the reality of what he's facing, he builds an altar. Gideon built an altar, and what did he call it? The God who is mighty warrior. The God who will equip me to go slay Midianites. The God who's a great avenger of wrongs. No, Gideon, before going to battle, built an altar and called it, the Lord is Shalom. God is peace. Because I'm going to need everything that is my God to come out of this alive. Lord is Shalom. Our God is peace. Our Savior is the Prince of Peace, the whole of his being. The whole of his being which he desires to share with love. That's what the promise of peace in the incarnation is all about. It's not just paying the penalty for our sins, as incredible as that is. 
but bringing us into relationship where we would experience the whole of his character. That is what salvation is. That's what we receive when we accept the offer of salvation in Christ. Yes, it is the payment for our sins and the blood of our Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Yes, it is coming, his coming to dwell in his church, in us individually, by the power of his spirit. Thank you, Lord, for that. But it's also our entering into the wholeness, the fullness, all that he is. That's what salvation is. If you don't know what that is, talk to me afterwards. Talk to Pastor Joyce. We would love to talk to you about that. That's what the offer of salvation is. It's the complete package. It's the complete package. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author speaks this of Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's like a stamped copy. It's not a copy from blueprints or from an engineer's drawing. It's a stamped copy copy he represents the father exactly so just as jesus was with his disciples in every way three years walked through all of human experience with them so our god wants to walk through all of our experiences with us yes he is a god capable of wrath that is clear but his essential nature is one of peace he would be with us and that's our peace he wants to share that with us that's what the incarnation's about. That's what Christmas is about. To live among us, to die for us, to be raised again. Which is also why human efforts at peace always fail. Because they can't include that part. They can't include that part of entering into the, the, the all that God is. Peace is found only in relationship with God through Christ. Two more scripture verses and we'll wrap this up. I know there's been a lot of scripture in this this morning, but there's so much in this word. Uh, 2 Peter 1.4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Not that we become little divine beings or anything, but we share in who he is. All that his holiness represents, all that his goodness represents, all that his righteousness, all that his all of it, and in the all of it is peace. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off. I love the Ephesians passage because it both represents that cessation of hostility, which we understand so easily in the word peace, but also in everything else that's there. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, having made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So that's the, that's the resolution of, of conflict part. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it, having put to death the enmity, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Lord, we thank you for the celebration of Advent. It, it causes us to turn our hearts and our minds to things that we hear so often, sometimes they lose their edge. Uh, in, in the case of, of peace, 
We've heard it misused so much that sometimes it's almost meaningless to us, and yet we know that it's, it expresses something of incredible value to us. Incredible value to us. And we want our experience of Christmas. Lord, we th I thank you for all the good stuff. I thank you for the, the, you know, the celebrations and the trees and the food and all that. Just all wonderful, Lord. But Father, how short we sell it. Father, how we miss it completely if we, if we don't get this idea that it's all about you giving all of you to us. And we want that to be at the core of our experience, Lord. Father, we face challenges, we face difficulties, we face trials, and it's really kind of easy to get, to get in the midst of those difficulties, Father, and forget that when we're immersed in you, Lord, those things are still there, but we can handle them. We can see them in a, in a better perspective, Lord. Help us, Father, for that to be our celebration of the season this year. Stepping into the fullness that you are and you filling all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.